<clears throat> Good morning. What a uh, privilege it is to be here with you. I have known uh, Dakota for, oh, probably a year or more, and um, he has truly become a very cherished friend of mine, and uh, we have a friendship that I hope to cherish for many, many more years to come. Uh, I find Dakota to be uh, very grounded and uh, loving and uh, truly a beacon for me and my family and uh, truly appreciate him. You have a, a, a wonderful pastor. He seems to me to be a very godly, humble man and uh, one who I look forward to getting to know uh, much, much deeper as the future goes on. This morning we're going to look into Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you would, uh, please turn your Bibles, or if you are on electronic device, please uh, access Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading through verses 1 through 10. While you do that, uh, I'll just open us briefly in, in prayer. Father in heaven, we gather before you this morning to exalt you. Your might and majesty are before us, and we know that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, we come before you broken and sinful and hurting, and we thank you for your guidance and your wisdom in our lives. And we pray, Father, that as I proclaim your word this morning, that you would help me to be a good teacher and that you would help the church be good listeners. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, that's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We live in a time when to remain steadfast in our Christianity, we need positive grounding in the gospel. 
a sturdy beacon for moral guidance and a genuine connection to pastoral care. One does not need to look very far to observe that our environments are wrought with unhappiness, distasteful behavior, identity confusion, and disunity. So prevalent are the social movements towards self that when a group of people assemble, they're generally considered extremist, cultish, or downright crazy. And when people do gather for their own purposes, it's clear that many groups, many of the groups they form are extremist, cultish, or downright crazy. The unfortunate reality is that being part of an assembly of people is hard. Different perspectives about various problems tend to spiral into hatefulness and spite. Being from dissimilar cultural backgrounds can often turn a simple conversation into an argument due to a misunderstanding over a simple turn of phrase. The way one lives his or her life might seem distasteful to others, thus instigating an unwarranted hurl of insults or disapprovals. Regardless of the circumstances, when we contemplate this thoroughly, it's easy to realize that we are all unified in the perspective that we are not unified. But the two major themes in the letter to the Ephesians teaches us that unity is precisely God's motive for all of creation, indeed all of mankind. And unity is accomplished only through Christ Jesus for God's glory. Paul cherishes the church. Certainly he has a heart for the church in Ephesus. Ephesus, you, uh, as you likely are aware, is where Paul spent years preaching the gospel of Christ and evangelizing various people groups. And the Ephesians were blessed by Paul, his spiritual leadership. But this letter comes to Ephesus after some years uh, during a time that Paul is a prisoner in Rome. Reading the entire six chapters of the letter, we get the sense that it's written from a positive pastoral posture. The letter's not an admonishment of specific behaviors, but is to be acknowledged as more of a letter of encouragement for the Ephesians to stay unified and loving among themselves as a church. It's been a few years since... Paul has been with the Ephesians, and he realizes that he's likely writing to some people that may not know him. So in the first half of the first chapter, Paul begins his greeting by establishing his authority as an apostle of Christ. He then opens in prayer uh, that emphasizes God's reconciliation and redemption of his people in Christ for the praise of his glory. And in the second half of the first chapter, Paul prays that his Christian friends in Ephesus, both known and unknown, would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they may know what is the hope to which he has 
called them. That's a reference of verse 18. Just as the Ephesians were well known for their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints, our hope is that we too might be known for these things. We can also pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened so that we might know what the hope is to which God has called us. Additionally, as faithful to Christ as the Christian Ephesians were, they experienced what many churches then and today experience, which is a, seamless, a seemingly hopeless barrage of evil advances from all sides and sometimes from within the church herself. The Christians in Ephesus faced another challenge, though. All around them was a culture known for its interest in magic and mysticism and the occult. So they would certainly feel the strain uh, of disapproval, a sting of ridicule after asserting that there is only one God and only one way to him. Paul is fully aware of this and knows that unless the Christians are reminded of who they were, where they are now, how they got here, and why, they are likely to falter and fumble in their faith. And it's at this point in chapter 2 of Paul's letter we begin to observe three divine truths. Uh, you'll have to excuse me as I dab the beads of sweat. It's only because Dakota is sitting before me and I know I've got to get this right. <laughs> Maybe I uh, overestimated the, uh, the temperature this morning. <laughs> Anybody here ever been called a heathen? No hands went up. Okay, that's good. If the King James Version of Scripture is your version of choice, you know that the word heathen is used a multitude of times in the Old Testament and the New. In the New Testament, a heathen is a reference to those who should be preached to and justified through faith in Christ. In more recent history, the word heathen was commonly used by my dad. He used the word heathen to describe me and my siblings just as assuredly as he would call us his kids. I remember one occasion specifically when my twin brother and I wanted to go camping, start a fire, and cook some hot dogs. We were around eight years old at the time, so we were determined, but a little inexperienced. Keep in mind, this is in the early 80s when parents uh, were always at work and kids were, in a way, left to their own devices by themselves and at each other's homes. Uh, no cell phones, no internet, just the wide open world outside. Since mom and dad weren't home, my brother and I knew that we couldn't go to the lake where we would normally camp and build a fire and cook hot dogs. All at once, it seemed hope was lost. 
Being brilliant children of ingenuity, though, we remembered the pile of wood out back. We also were fully aware of where the lighter fluid was kept, along with the matches. And we didn't have to think too long to remember that the hot dogs were generally kept in the fridge. <laughs> Brother, we convinced ourselves, looks like hot dogs it is. My brother and I methodically gathered the chunks of wood and the various items that we were convinced would burn, like leaves and newspaper and old wheelbarrow tire. If, what? If we were to look upon this massive pile of burnable material now, it might have only just been a molehill. But back then, it seemed to us that we might have just enough of a blaze to warm up the sun. There we stood before our fire mound, soaking it thoroughly with lighter fluid. Ah, children, so sweet, so innocent, and oblivious that there is such a thing as too much lighter fluid. When I say we thoroughly soaked this burn pile, I mean to say <laughs> we thoroughly soaked it. That lighter fluid was filtering through that burnable material, collecting on the concrete driveway and puddling a trail down toward the street gutter. <laughs> there is no doubt this was to be an epic burn. Then we joyously removed a match from the box. I can't be certain, but rumor had it uh, in our circle of friends that you could see smoke miles into the air. I'm sure you all may be wondering what the outcome of that blaze might have been, but that is an entirely different sermon. One thing is for certain, though, from then on, in my dad's eyes, we were heathens. That was our identity. It was just who we were, products of our, our environment. And at various times, family would gather, and we would relive that story, reminded that we were trouble. In a similar and much more endearing way to the Ephesians, Paul reminds them that they too were heathens. As seen in verse 1, they were dead in trespasses and sins in which they once walked. This is the way we enter the world, dead. That is, spiritually unresponsive to God and His glory. Physically, we exist, yes, uh, Paul says this differently when he tells the Ephesians that in trespasses and sins we once walked. This is not a phrase Paul's using that, that literally speaks to like the speed and stride and left foot, right foot motion of walking. Paul's talking about the way in which the Ephesians behaved, following the course of this world, as in, seen in verse 2. Paul's not talking about the earth 
when he uses the word world. The world in the context of the letter means something more like the world around them. The environment in which they live and that, that they function. Paul's reminding the Ephesians that they once functionally existed, not merely in occasional acts of sin, but with sin as the medium of their daily lives. It is just who they were. You ever walk into an area of a big city and you get that feeling that this place that you've walked into has the potential of, of danger. It kind of gives you that, that, that unction that this is not a safe place. This is not a healthy environment. Well, this is what Paul is talking about. They were spiritually dead, existing in an atmosphere of trespass and sin. And they were not just victims of this circumstance, they were active participants. Notice in verse 3 when Paul continues that they once walked following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air is implying whatever debauchery was most prevalent at that time and in that place. Meaning the Ephesians indeed were all once dead and willingly participating in uh, whatever course of sinfulness our environment had made its God. Whatever that thing was at that time for the Ephesians and, and today for us, that we walked in and participated in was the authoritative presence we followed. And those presences, those prevalent powers that once kept us obedient to them, but disobedient to God, Paul reminds us, were still and are now still at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, who are they? Well, Paul is implicating here those who consciously resist God's will, which renders them helpless to the working of Satan's hosts. This was once us, Christians, or maybe this is still you. I have no doubt you can remember a time when you once walked through your life without regard to God's will and glory, what would it mean to follow the power of the prince or the prince of the power of the air? Likely a very recognizable example of this might be the sex, drugs, and rock and roll era of American history. Closer to home these days, the prince of the power of the air is clearly the destruction of God's created order of man and woman. I'm curious if what Paul is talking about here is parallel with the adage, a sign of the times. But following the course of the world isn't exclusive to the extremities of debauchery. 
being at the will of Satan with the sons of disobedience can be quite subtle. A wife and mother of three children sending inappropriate pictures to a man who is not her husband or the father of her children. A man so addicted to pornography that it's eating away all of his time and energy. He's engaging in it at work, hiding it at home. Desperate to break away, but unable to turn from it. Maybe disobedience is strong-arming your personal agenda through the local church because you know how things ought to be done. Yes, friends, this is where we once were and where we once walked. And I am heartbroken to reveal that this is where many sitting with us today likely still are. In verse 3, even Paul is taken aback by the weight of this human condition. He pauses in his thought here and remembers, we all once lived among these sons of disobedience, these princes of the power of the air. Paul continues as he describes living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds. Indeed, by our very nature, we were dirty, rotten children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, dead. Well, church, you can certainly sense the gravity of just how depraved and wretched the world was and is. I think back on my own life. Mistakes I've made, sins I willingly participated in. Still, there are times that I smack my own forehead, pull my hand down over my own face in shame and wonder, what was I thinking? I truly was utterly hopeless and helpless to sin. But... God. Friends, if there was ever a moment so significant when you could appropriately let out a sigh of relief, that was it. Paul declares in verse 4, but God. Just as the fate of mankind seemed never more desperate and hopeless, Paul utters the greatest phrase in all of human history. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Amen? We were enemies of God. We were walking aimlessly, yet willingly, toward our own destruction, at odds and enmity with the Creator of the universe, resistant in every way to God's will. 
fully deserving of God's divine wrath. But God made us alive with Christ. This is known as regeneration, by the way. God loved us with such great love that even though we were dead in our trespasses and following destructive behaviors, He restored us. At this moment in redemptive history, Paul is awestruck by the very magnitude of this phenomenal development and interrupts his own thought to excitedly declare, By grace you have been saved. Friends, that alone is enough to bring me to my knees in fear and trembling. But God didn't stop there. No, he, he didn't just bring us to life together in Christ. God went further than that. God raised us up with Christ. Look at this in verse 6. God raised us up with him. We were resurrected with Christ, raised from our spiritual death, just as Christ was raised from his physical death. This is truly a rags-to-riches story for us. But there is more. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might do what? Show us even more immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Let me be clear about what's happening here in this moment. God, being rich in mercy because of His great love and kindness for us, made us alive in Christ, raised us up with Christ, and seated us in heavenly places with Christ. For what? To show us even more immeasurable kindness. This is blowing my mind. It's okay right now if you'd like to shout, Amen! Amen. That is phenomenal mercy. Amazing kindness. What a glorious shift in the work of reconciliation from death to life in Christ. In verse 5, Paul seemed overcome by God's amazing grace and declared that phrase, By grace you have been saved. Well, Paul makes this comment again here in verse 8 and adds a distinction. He says, for, grace you for by grace you have been saved through faith. We believed it. We believed that this wondrous and magnificent benevolent God sent His Son to live among us on earth, die on the cross, be buried in a tomb, and rise up three days later so that God could show us immeasurable kindness. 
It's at that narrow thread of this occasion we must move forward cautiously. You see what the Bible says here in verses 8 and 9, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This, too, is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you see? The very faith you have in this story of salvation is not something you yourself could muster. Even your faith was gifted to you because of God's kindness toward you and mercy on you. Can you even imagine that? The very thing it takes for your salvation to be bought and paid for, God gifted you so that you would be reconciled to him. I would argue there are two reasons for this. First, we don't have the capability of creating faith within ourselves. We must be given faith to have it. When he is explaining spiritual gifts, Paul explains this further in 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, if we had the capacity of creating faith as a distinction of our own human nature, we would boast about it and turn it into a matter of achievement and status. We would hear things like, today, I faithed a lot. I faithed more than you did. Or, look at this wonderful faith I made. You see, the, the I in those statements helps us to recognize that would not be a gift from God. The very, the very thing you need to complete the transaction for your salvation is provided to you as a gift from the God who has saved you. So there's nothing you can do. Salvation by grace through faith is not due to some positive evolution of your character or self-originating effort. In fact, these things would be fatal to your spiritual life. No, Paul goes on to clarify for us just what's happened here. We were saved not by good works, but for good works. In verse, we, in verse 10, we see this. Paul explains that, friends, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are the pinnacle of his creation, a created being that God loves and lavishes with his kindness and mercy. I'm going to end with some uh, encouragement here that Paul's letter to the Ephesians was written nearly 2,000 years ago to a congregation of believers who came from different backgrounds and stations in life. And the Christians in Ephesus needed encouragement 
and spiritual guidance to stave off Satan's hosts. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul's letter served as a beacon of hope, a reference point in which to turn if and certainly when the Ephesians would falter and possibly even turn on themselves. How poignant these truths are for us today, two millennia later. My friends, the story of the church in Ephesus doesn't end here. A look at John's Revelation, chapter 2, helps us understand how things develop for them. The royal author, Jesus Christ himself, presents his royal edicts to the church of Ephesus and says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place unless you repent. Church, you have been saved by God's glorious grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing you have done ever has accomplished this for you. In the passage of Ephesians chapter 2 and Revelation 2, both Paul and Jesus himself Exhort you to remember where you were, where you are now, how you got here, and why. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. For those of you discovering God's word today, whose hearts are being made alive, Receive God's gift. The fact that you're sitting with us today is proof positive of God's immeasurable kindness and mercy and grace for you. The one and only God of the universe has orchestrated your presence in this place, in this moment, and for this purpose. That you would be regenerated in Christ raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places so that your lives would be a testament of glorious fruits that are the good works God has prepared for you. In a moment, I will pray over this body of Christ. While I'm praying, if, a, if with a regenerated heart, you are ready to receive God's gift 
of salvation, or if as a believer you feel the need to humble yourself and repent, feel free to join us as we pray together. Father in heaven, you are so good to us. We are reminded constantly of your grace and your mercy and your kindness. Whether it be in a beautifully cool spring or fall breeze, the beautiful music of a, of a baby crying. Lord, we know that your kindness and mercy on us is abundant, far greater than we could ever think or imagine. Thank you that even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you saved us so that we might do good works, all that you may be glorified. And these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take a few minutes to respond amongst ourselves, and then we'll stand and sing a song of response. We'll pray and be dismissed.